Good morning, Disciples Church. Um, glad that you guys are joining us this morning. Um, as you can probably tell, I am not Pastor Josh. Uh, <laughs> we don't uh, bear any striking resemblance, but um, I'll let you know why I'm up here this morning instead of Pastor Josh. Uh, he called me late last night, and I could tell right away this was one of those phone calls of, uh, hey, you might want to be ready. I may not make it in tomorrow. Uh, only the voice sounded way worse than that. I was like, hey, I'm at home dying. Do you think you could do this? <laughs> uh, so he sent me a sermon last night, said, you know, look it over, make it your own, and, and uh, I'll let you know in the morning if I need that to happen. And so uh, by God's sovereign will, I'm here this morning. Um, and Josh is at home resting. So be praying for Josh. Uh, for those of you who know how much he loves preaching and, and bringing the word for his flock, uh, you know how hard it is for him to miss. So obviously he's not feeling well. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name's Stephen Obert. I'm the youth director here at Disciples Church. Uh, I get to preach occasionally throughout the year to give Josh a break. Uh, also, as God would have it, I get to do that for three Sundays in a row in this, this uh, round. So, uh, wow. Uh, pray for me. <laughs> um, but it really, is, it really is my joy to be up here and to be bringing God's Word uh, with you this morning. So without further ado, will you guys get your Bibles out and open up to the Gospel of Matthew? Uh, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Uh, I'll jump to some other verses in your bulletin, there was a little uh, sermon note outline that you can follow along, take notes on, and um, the passages, a lot of them will be up here on the screen as well. So Matthew chapter 1. The birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Okay, stop, that's all I'm going to read of it. Um, we're calling our 2017 Advent sermon series, The Nativity. Nativity means the process or circumstances of being born. It's birth. When the word is capitalized, it means the birth of Jesus. So why does one person's birth get to own the capitalization of a word? It's because the birth of Jesus Christ is the most significant birth to ever happen in the history of mankind. While December 25th is not the date and winter was not the season that Jesus was born in, it is traditionally the time of year that we celebrate Jesus' birth. Now, pagan or man-made agendas have all too often driven holiday seasons like Christmas and Easter. But as true disciples of Christ, we participate in the midst of the lights and presents and holiday traditions with one person and occasion at the absolute center of our hearts and minds, and that is Jesus Christ. Christmas is the birthday celebration of Jesus. It's always surprised me how quickly the party starts to feel like others are at the center. It's our kids, our spouses, even ourselves. We get caught up in, in the, the hustle of Christmas and the, the gifts and the family members and what are we cooking and what are we going to do and I really hope so-and-so likes this thing. As we kick off this year's Christmas season, Please join me in joyfully and authentically keeping Jesus the center of his own birthday party and not simply crammed into a three-minute speech or some prayer that you say before you eat. Let's be careful not to make it about ourselves or about other things, but focus on our Lord and Savior. 
My hope for us is that Jesus will be remembered, honored, and celebrated this Christmas, and that it will be something that pours over into 2018, that we'll keep our eyes and our focus on our Lord. So to focus on Jesus' birth this year in our Advent sermon series, we will turn to the four biggest and most central texts about Jesus' birth that God gives us in his holy scriptures. We find these in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. Um, We don't uh, find this in Mark because Mark begins its testimony at the work of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is the one who announces Jesus as the Lamb of God, and this happens at the beginning of his adult ministry. Also, the Gospel of John, which we have been preaching through for almost two years. Can you believe that? Uh, It's been amazing. Love the Gospel of John. Uh, But it also begins with Jesus' ministry, although in chapter 1 it speaks a little bit about the incarnation of Christ. It doesn't give us very many details into his birth and how all of that stuff happened. So for this series, we're going to focus on two main passages, both from Matthew and from Luke's Gospel. Uh, In this, we will see the unique group of people that God ordained to surround Christ at his birth. Uh, Pastor Josh called this series the Nativity, because that is where we're headed over the next four weeks. We're going to focus on the scene of Jesus' birth, and we're going to see who was there and what important role God wanted them to play. So let's read our first, uh, well, we're going to read the whole passage together uh, and see what God did in and through Joseph. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Will you guys bow with me as as I open in prayer? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the God-ordained time to come together as a family to worship you to worship in song and and in the reading of your scripture and taking of communion, to remember our our desperate need for a Savior and for the work that you did through your Son, through his incarnation, through his perfect life, and through his sacrificial death. There's no sweeter thing that an ear can hear, but that you save. And God, we ask that you would move in the hearts of those here this morning that you would open blind eyes to sight, deaf ears to hear, and and that you would remove dead hearts, hearts of stone, and replace them with hearts of flesh. Salvation belongs to you, God. And so we ask that you move in us. For the saints, we ask that you would build us up 
Remind us who we are in you. Remind us what you've done and that we would leave this place with a, um, a focus on you, not just at Christmas, but uh, in preparation for the new year ahead, Lord. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew 1, 18 through 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Betrothal is a much more serious form of engagement. Uh, here we get engaged, and that time they called it betrothal. The two members involved in a betrothal are not yet fully or formally married, but they are formally committed to each other to be married. In this culture and time, betrothal was such a serious commitment that to bring it to an end was a separation like divorce. So when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, although he has honored her and God and has not been with her, he assumes, as anyone would, that she betrayed him and laid with another man to become pregnant. Now, when we said they took betrothal serious, we see how serious it was when we consider that the punishment for this level of betrayal and unfaithfulness would have been death. Even in the betrothal period, this would have been grounds for death as it was seen as a high form of sexual immorality. Now, because Joseph loved Mary, he sought to divorce her quietly by ending the betrothal and calling off the marriage with the hopes that her punishment would not be more severe. Isn't it amazing when you see people exercise great mercy, especially in circumstances where they are greatly offended? How many of you think you could do what Joseph was planning to do here? Imagine yourself in that situation. Joseph has the kind of heart to love and care for Mary, even though in his mind she has totally and utterly betrayed him. Joseph's perception of Mary being illegitimately pregnant is absolutely logical, right? Because in the history of man, no one has ever conceived a child without a man and a woman coming together. What we get to see here is the hand of God at work. And what is impossible for man is possible for God. This brings us to the clarity and the declaration of the angels to Joseph in his dream in the next part of our text, Matthew 1, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now notice that the angel refers to Joseph as son of David. This is a beautiful highlight of the fulfillment of the messianic promise that the Messiah would be in the line of David. Church, do you see how clear and complete the word of God is? All of the prophecies of the coming Messiah are fulfilled in Christ. Now the angel is quick to address Joseph's fears and correct his plans to divorce Mary by saying that he should take Mary as his wife because she was not unfaithful to him. She was not cheating on him. She did not lay with another man to become pregnant. 
What has happened to her was an act of God. The baby conceived in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine Joseph's relief? She wasn't unfaithful. If you consider the deep love that he had for her, that he was willing to divorce her quietly so that she wouldn't be put to shame. And in this dream, an angel from God says, no, she wasn't unfaithful. I can only imagine how quickly that relief was removed by the weight and beauty of the fact that they had been chosen by God to do a work never done before. The Holy Spirit has made a baby in her womb. What a miracle. What a truly wondrous act of God. The virgin birth is very important. For those who have said it doesn't matter if Mary truly was a virgin or um, it doesn't matter that uh, if Joseph was, was the birth father, that they clearly misunderstand the teaching of Scripture. The sins of the father are passed down from generation to generation. The virgin birth is vital. This means that the man's seed is not passed on to the child, and the baby to be born will not be born in sin as all mankind has been since Adam's failure in the garden. The curse of original sin that comes from the federal head, Adam, uh, since the fall to every human born of man is not on this child because this child is not conceived by man, but by God. What I want you guys to see here is that this was not a natural birth. This was not two humans coming together to make a baby. This conception was done by the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural birth. And by this, Christ is born sinless. Not like the rest of mankind who is born from natural birth and born into sin under the curse of Adam. I hope you see how vital this truth is. It's not something that can be pushed aside. If Christ were born of an earthly mother and father, he would have been born in sin like all of us are, and he would not have been the spotless lamb we so desperately needed. Jesus is not given a cursed nature that is bound by original sin. Jesus is holy. He always has been holy, and he always will be holy. Even when he puts on flesh, he remains holy. He was conceived holy, and he remained holy. And this is a critical factor if he's going to be the eternal and efficient sacrifice for our sins. What a divinely perfect appointment that only God can make a reality. Look at what the angel says next to Joseph. It's probably my favorite passage in all of Scripture. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek translation for Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the name of God that he declares to Moses prior to the Exodus. We see this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. The Lord. 
all capitalized, L-O-R-D. These four letters were in Hebrew for consonants. Consonants, I can never say that word right. Uh, Y-H-W-H. This was so sacred that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce them. Our modern word for God's name is Yahweh. So anywhere you see the Lord in all capital letters in the Bible is a sign that it is in reference to the one true God. And the name of that God is Yahweh. It is a name describing his eternal power and unchangeable character. Yahweh, the great I am. God is, he always has been, he always will be. He reigns over all things, he owns all things, and he controls all things. While God the Son took on flesh and was conceived in Mary's womb and was born and grew, we must rightly see that he is not created. He didn't have a beginning. He is not limited in any way. He simply is. The baby in the womb was God in the flesh. He came, he arrived, and praise God he came to do a vital work, to save condemned, deserving sinners from their sin and the penalty of death. Look at the testimony of Jesus later in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, what is ironic is the answer is the self-righteous Pharisees are sick in sin. They too are desperate for Christ alone for salvation. But Jesus' point is this. There is a plague that has condemned all of mankind. And if any will be saved, it will be through him and him alone. People who are well don't go to the doctor. Anybody else like me have white coat syndrome? I won't go to the doctor when I'm sick. I'll go to the doctor when I feel like I'm dying, and that's about it. (laughs) And those who are righteous don't need a Savior. It's those who are sinners that need a Savior. It's those who are dead in their sin that need to be brought back to life. Jesus says here that he came to save the lost, the dead in sin. This is truly good news. It is the best Christmas present that you could be given this year or ever, for that matter. Why? Because we are all riddled with sins, sickness. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You see, our only cure is atonement. Someone else must take on what is due us, and they must credit to us their perfect righteousness. And who is the only one who is made like us in every way and yet is without sin? Who is totally righteous? It's Jesus. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The only one who is totally righteous took on flesh. John 1.14 says, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Son of God in a body like yours and mine. So why does this matter? Why is the incarnation so important? I mean, why are we celebrating this birth every year? It's because we can touch flesh. We can identify with flesh. You can wrap your arms around flesh and you can feel its heartbeat. And most importantly, if one is looking for a sacrifice for the sins of man, you can pierce flesh and it will bleed. You can nail flesh to the cross and it will die. So why is it so important that he came to do this? Why does the Son of God need to put on flesh and die on the cross? It's back to my favorite passage. For he will save his people from their sins. As Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And 1 Peter 2.24 reads, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The only way the spiritually sick are healed or the dead made alive, is to have our sin paid for. Jesus taking on flesh was a rescue mission. It was God's great gift of sacrificial love and amazing grace for his people. Listen, anything that you are praying for this Christmas, the deepest longings of your heart, the things that you think will make you happy or fix what is broken, they're all coal in the stocking compared to the greatest gift God could ever give you, which is saving faith. Saving faith is God's holy and divine calling to new life in Him. Jesus came to save sinners. This is the greatest gift we could ever be given. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, this is why we worship Jesus at Christmas. This is why this holiday and Christ's incarnation is so important. It changes everything for those who will repent of their sins and trust in him. We were desperate for him to come. The scary thing, though, is that some of you here today are not desperate for him. You think that you are doing okay without him. Or like the religious elite that stood over Jesus that day, you think you're you're doing really well, and it's those people over there that need a Savior. You see, you and I are dead in our sin. There's only one, only one who can save The Pharisees and the religious elite would not accept the assessment of their condition by the Lord Jesus Christ. They would not acknowledge that they were poor prisoners, blind and oppressed, spiritually bankrupt with nothing to commend themselves. They didn't think they were poor in spirit. They didn't think they were prisoners of sin. 
They love to think that they were free before men and God based on their good life. But hear this. There will never be salvation. There will never be the forgiveness of sin. There will never be eternal life for anybody who thinks he can stand before God without the advocate, Jesus Christ, paying their way with his blood. There is salvation in no one else. Church, how I pray you see the humility of God to put on flesh and that he did this to come and save those who were dead in sin and utter rebellion. I pray that it humbles us. We're not just desperate for him to get us to heaven, but we're desperate for God to give us a heart that joyfully submits our lives to him. Jesus, Yahweh saves. That is his name. It is the name above all names. Philippians 2, 6-11. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that beautiful how God saves? Matthew 1, 22 through 23 reads, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this is a quote that we find in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. How do you think the people in in the Old Covenant processed this prophecy? What do you think they were thinking? To be told that a virgin would conceive and bear a son is literally an oxymoron. It is not possible. But again, what is impossible for man is always possible with God. So we see 700 years before the Messiah's birth, God's plan for the incarnation revealed. And it was declared that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Just stop and consider that for a moment. God with us. God who is high and hallowed, who is worthy and majestic and righteous and all-powerful. That God, the only God, he is with us, among us. And this is the beautiful clarity that the Gospel of John gives us in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He dwelt among us. The word dwelt here means to tabernacle. Uh, The definition of dwelt is to tent or encamp, to 
occupy or reside, just like God did in the tabernacle under the old covenant. You see, that tabernacle had a huge significance in that it foreshadowed God the Son incarnate. Almost everything about the tabernacle pointed to the Word made flesh. There's many different types and antitypes in the tabernacle, and so I want to just point out a few of those as we continue. You see, the tabernacle was a temporary appointment. In this, it differed from the temple of Solomon, which was a permanent structure. The tabernacle was merely a tent. It was a temporary convenience, something that was suited to be moved about from place to place during the journeys of the children of Israel. And so it was when our blessed Lord tabernacled among men. His three decades on earth in the flesh was but a brief one in the light of eternity. And like the type, he stayed not long in any one place, but was constantly on the move, unwearied in the activity of his love. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. It was there in the midst of Israel's camp, God, who is spirit, took up his residence among his people. There between the cherubim, upon the mercy seat, he made his throne. In the Holy of Holies, he manifested his presence by means of the Shekinah glory, which is the glory of God, the very presence of Yahweh. And during the 33 years that the word tabernacled among men, God had his dwelling place in Palestine. The Holy of Holies received its antitypical fulfillment in the person of God the Son. Just as the Shekinah glory dwelt between the two cherubim, so on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God flashed forth between two men, Moses and Elijah, saying, We beheld his glory. You see, this language is typical of the tabernacle. Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14 continues, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The phrase we have seen here, it doesn't really translate deep enough, in my opinion. The word seen here is better translated beheld. To behold means to look closely at or intently at. Think of things you really slow down and behold. The things you don't just see, but you look intently at. You closely gaze upon now, here's what's very sobering. Often the things that we are guilty of making time to behold are sinful things. What are the images or scenes or people that you behold? What are you looking at intently or closely? I'm not going to list what they could be. I mean, I think if we stop long enough and we're honest enough, you guys know what I'm talking about. Back to John 1.14, and we have seen, we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Church, what I want you to consider is this game-changing reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because Christ put on flesh, you and I can behold his glory. Please don't toss aside what this means for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, this is good news because before Christ's incarnation, the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, resided only in the Holy of Holies. And therefore it was veiled, it was hidden from the common man. But now we behold his divine glory. A.W. Pink says it this way, The glories of our Lord are infinite, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. No subject ought to be dearer to the heart of a believer. We beheld his glory refers to his essential glory or his divine perfections. This is clear from the words that we read here in verse 14. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. You see, this is a glory that only belongs to the living God. The glory of God in the flesh is the heartbeat that we all sing about in Christmas. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Veiled in flesh the Godhead was, or the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. In Isaiah 6, as Isaiah is looking into heaven, he says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. When we fast forward to John chapter 12, verse 41, John says, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. So the picture that Isaiah experienced of heaven being open was a glimpse into the majesty and the glory of the presence of Jesus. He was seated on the throne. He was ruling over all the people's times and places, and he was being worshipped as God. And Christmas is the celebration that Jesus, in a sense, and I'll clear that up in a second, came off his throne, humbled himself, and physically entered into human history through the womb of Mary, the young virgin. And he came as a man. In so doing, he went from one culture to another. Now let me bring some clarity. Jesus didn't give up his deity to become man. Jesus always was, always is, God. When Jesus put on flesh, when he became incarnate, he took on a second nature. Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God at the same time. The amazing part of that is that when Christ is nailed to a cross, it is Jesus' deity that holds him there, that keeps wood wood and keeps nails nails and allows men to kill him. I know that can be a difficult concept to understand, and we don't have that kind of time this morning, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that point. The, the scriptures are very clear that Christ humbled himself to put on flesh, but I don't want you to be confused and think that Christ stopped being God at the same time. He never stopped. I said, in so doing, he went from one culture to another. 
He went from glory to humility, from a throne to a manger. He went from extravagance to poverty. This is God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus entered into human history as a missionary. In this, he enters into another culture. He abided by their language and food and customs and style. He put on flesh and he contextualized. He came into history into a culture with the people that spoke a specific language and they ate a certain food and they wore certain clothes and he entered that. That's our God. And in so doing, he gives us an example of how we are to live our lives in our culture, contextualizing and getting to know the world that we are in to bring the truth of God to a lost and dying world. This is what Paul emphasizes in Philippians 2, 5 through 7. It reads, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That is Emmanuel. That is God with us. That is Yahweh who saves. What a word Joseph has been given about the baby in Mary's womb. The son he will be charged to raise. What a word of good news in a situation of what looked to be total and utter betrayal. The angel gave him news that would change everything. Not just for Joseph, for all mankind. Good news that was so much more than he could have ever dreamed or asked for. So what did Joseph do? Matthew 1, 24 through 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. It says that he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He was obedient to the word from the Lord through the Lord's messenger. He had faith in the unbelievable things he was told. This truth wasn't just something he heard. It was something he believed and it moved him to action. Church, I pray that you see not only Joseph's caring mercy for Mary when he thought that she had totally betrayed him, but also his obedience to do what God directed him to, even when it seemed like this was an impossible circumstance. This is for us today. When you see the nativity, when you see Joseph, see his devotion and see his faith, see his obedience to do what God had commanded him to do. He didn't act according to the flesh. He honored God. It says he took his wife, or he took Mary as his wife, but he knew her not, meaning that he didn't sleep with her until she had given birth to Jesus. He committed himself to her not based on scientific evidence or DNA testing, but based on the word of God. He also put aside what every man who is in love and has given a wife wants, which is to be with his wife. He honored the Lord and he loved her and was committed to her in a way that honored God. There's so many things that we can say about Joseph's obedience here, but one of the things that I want us to see 
is that when God reveals truth to us, it should move us to action. It is not enough for us to hear. True belief, genuine faith, causes action. You see, God sovereignly moved here in the life of Mary and Joseph to bring about his eternal plan and his eternal son entering the world to take on the sin of his people. So I want to bring it to a close with this passage again. Matthew 121. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God will sovereignly save his people from their sins. Will you celebrate this Christmas God's work to answer our most desperate need? Will Jesus be your focus this season and this year? Will you remember the work that Christ did, putting on flesh and becoming a sacrifice, hanging on a cross for our sins? And will it move you to action? Not just a hearing and a belief, but a doing. We live in a world that is lost and dying. Just turn on the news. It doesn't take long to see it. We've been commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. Christ sending us to the end of the earth. I pray that as we celebrate Christmas this year, that will become a reality for us. That we will see, we will hear, we will believe, and we will move. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning, for your word, God, and your sovereign appointment. Um, pray for the hearts and the ears who've come this morning and, and heard your word, Lord, that you would be moving. We're desperate for your work. Who can believe that a virgin had a baby in her womb? without the work of you, God. Pray that we would remember, not just here at Christmas, but throughout this, this coming year, that you put on flesh, and we have seen your glory, that you humbled yourself to a cross so that we could stand before God the Father one day covered in your blood not claiming a righteousness of our own but holding to you trusting in Jesus' finished work in Jesus' name we pray Amen